Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. In this episode, I talk about the pitfalls of attending a multi-ethnic church, more outlandish racial profiling by the police, the first two democratic debates, and relatedly, the history of busing, and finally, the crisis at the border. But before we get to that, let's talk about the reviews. We are currently at 136 reviews on iTunes. Now that's up from 123 last episode and 109 reviews the episode before that. So can we make it to 150 reviews by the next episode of Footnotes? Uh, Maybe. If you leave a review, yes, you. I'd love it if you did that. And now in the past couple of weeks, y'all have written such great reviews that I want to read you not one, but two different reviews. And the first one comes from Jen Kinney, 77. She writes, tired of the culture war commentary, I am. And she goes on to say, I look forward to my biweekly dose of footnotes and selfishly wish this podcast aired every week. Jamar Tisby's voice is much needed and appreciated for clarity and perspective on current events. I very much appreciate that, Jen Kinney. I would love to do this podcast every week, but right now it is so much work doing the research and recording and everything. Bi-weekly is about all I can handle, but of course, with so much news happening and coming at us so fast, really relentlessly, uh, this podcast could certainly be every week. And hopefully that's something that we can work up to. If we can streamline the process and there is enough of a demand for it, we'll see what we can do. This next one comes from Flag Mom, or maybe P Flag Mom, and she writes, Important Perspective. Jamar Tisby provides a thoughtful and thought-provoking analysis of current events. Though I don't agree with his theology, identifying as a humanist, I do appreciate his perspective and his generosity of spirit. Thank you so much for that, and thank you for listening. I really actually appreciate the fact that you're coming from a different perspective as a humanist, and though you may not see uh, my Christian perspective as in agreement with your perspective all the time, it's really great that you have an open mind and that you would listen to my commentary and find uh, anything helpful about it. So I really do appreciate you taking the time and, and being open-minded enough to listen to someone who maybe you don't see eye to eye with on everything, but you can still glean some good information. So thanks for leaving that review. Now, on to the news. This first piece is not so much a bit of news. It's more of a reflection based on some of my own personal interactions online. So earlier this week, I put out a tweet, and it's always funny. Social media, is it's like a slot machine. Each post you make, it's like putting a coin into the slot. And when you press send or whatever, that's like pulling the lever. And most of the time, you come up with nothing. But every once in a while, you hit the jackpot. Now, in this sense, the jackpot has nothing to do with money. It is a post that generates some lively discussion. So earlier this week, I put out a tweet. It was just a single sentence, and it has since been retweeted a number of times. Not a million times or anything, but a number of times. And it's gotten dozens and dozens of comments, uh, lots of different people, a little bit of back and forth. And the tweet reads simply, a couple of hours of multi-ethnic fellowship on Sunday does not make you an anti-racist. 
a couple of hours of multi-ethnic fellowship on Sunday does not make you an anti-racist. And I thought, since this tweet evoked such a strong feeling from people, I wanted to take a little time right now to share some more thoughts. So first, I wasn't saying that all multi-ethnic churches are bad. It can be a good thing to attend a multi-ethnic church. I just want us to be realistic about what happens at some of these churches. First of all, the expectations for multi-ethnic churches are way too high. They have been presented as the panacea to all prejudice. If we can just get it right in multi-ethnic churches, then Christians will lead the way in transforming our religious and even our secular institutions into more racially just spaces. Well, that's a very tall order considering that every church, multi-ethnic or not, is filled with sinners in need of grace. And the people who attend multi-ethnic churches, they're at various stages in their racial journeys. Not everyone who sits next to you in the pew on Sunday is on the same page about race. In fact, there are some people, particularly white Christians, who act as if going to a multi-ethnic church is really all they have to do when it comes to fighting racial injustice. So simply by making this decision to attend a multi-ethnic church, they believe that they're doing more than most white people, and so they're okay. Well, my concern is that folks with this mindset think that racial justice simply means checking a box or putting in their time at church each, each week and then going back to business as usual. What about the rest of the week? What are you doing on a day-to-day basis to bring about racial justice? So here's a big issue, particularly for white evangelicals. As I have mentioned many different times in many different settings, white evangelicals tend to think of racism primarily in individual and interpersonal terms. They see the problem as personal relationships, personal bigotry and prejudice, people using racial slurs, discrimination, all these individual acts. And so, if that's the problem, then the solution to racism is to have better relationships, That's why they're going to a multi-ethnic church. And when you do that, if this is your conception of racism, this individual, interpersonal kind of racism, then going to a multi-ethnic church can actually lull you into thinking that you're doing more for racial justice than you really are. Listen, multi-ethnic churches are great for offering the chance to develop relationships across racial and ethnic lines. You go to church together, Bible studies, small groups, you witness baptisms, you pray together, and perhaps you even socialize. But if I'm a white, if we're talking about white evangelicals or someone with a similar outlook on race, then you might think you're doing your part and that's it. Like, look at this diversity in my life. Look at how many of my best friends are black. That kind of mentality. But what about the institutional and structural ways that racism works? What about the racial wealth gap, for instance? Whites have 10 to 11 times the wealth of black people. When we think about the problem of mass incarceration, one in three black men are likely to go to prison versus one in 17 white men. And when we talk about this pro-life issue, this banner issue for many conservative white evangelicals, Black mothers die in maternity-related deaths at three to four times the rate of white women. Those are just a few of the ways that racism works itself out in systemic and institutional ways. And all the personal relationships in the world won't make a dent in these system-wide racial disparities. That's why I said a couple of hours of multi-ethnic fellowship on Sunday does not make you an anti-racist. 
Look, we need to live integrated lives Monday through Saturday too, and not just subsist on a couple of hours of diversity on Sunday. Yet more evidence of racial profiling among the police. On the last episode of Footnotes, I talked about Phoenix police officers who accosted a black couple. The woman was visibly pregnant and holding a toddler. They threatened these young people. They had guns drawn. They were yelling at them. They treated them like violent, hostile criminals. And by the way, by the way these police officers acted, you would have thought this black couple had committed armed robbery and they were engaged in a standoff with the police, Bonnie and Clyde style. But what was their heinous crime? Their four-year-old daughter had walked out of a store with a Barbie doll and didn't pay for it. Well, the hits keep coming. Recently, yet another video came to light, and the police response is perhaps even more ridiculous than that episode in Phoenix. So, imagine you are hospitalized for some reason. You undergo treatment, and then after several days, you're finally strong enough to walk again. This is something that doctors and nurses generally encourage. They want their patients, if they're able, to stretch their legs, get the blood moving, even go outside and get some fresh air and sunlight. Well, in Freeport, Illinois, about an hour and a half west of Chicago, a man named Shaquille Dukes, who's 24, was arrested for disorderly conduct. His conduct? Walking outside a hospital, at which he was a patient, with an IV pole. Apparently, a security guard spotted Dukes and thought he was stealing medical equipment. Mind you, Dukes was in a hospital gown. You know, the kind that opens in the back for all the world to see. And he had the IV needle in his hand. He was wearing a hospital wristband. It was beyond obvious that he was a patient at the hospital and not someone trying to steal the medical equipment. Dukes said the security guard called him, and he was with two other people, uh, both black, called them over to his car and asked if they were trying to, quote, leave the hospital and sell the IV equipment on eBay. And Duke said, I was livid. I was irate. The first thing this police officer said to me wasn't, what's your name? Can I help you? But are you stealing this? Dukes said his friend began recording the encounter as Dukes was trying to explain to the security guard that they were on a walk. The the security guard called the cops. They took his inhaler. They took out the IV. A doctor didn't take it out. They did. He was taken back to the hospital in the back of a police cruiser in handcuffs. And the only reason we even know about this is because Dukes was with two other people and one of them recorded the entire encounter. Now, if you watch the tape, Duke was not belligerent or loud. He did everything right, and he still got harassed. He was still suspected of stealing. And and, and not that it should matter what he was doing because the whole situation is so absurd. But what does this all mean? It means that it's not a gun or aggressiveness. It's not the presence or even the absence of a crime that makes certain police officers feel threatened. It's blackness itself. The mere fact of appearing to be of African descent is reason enough for many police officers to react in ridiculous ways, even when it's clear there's no physical threat. White supremacy means that blackness itself is a crime. For some people, 
empowered to serve and protect, it doesn't matter what you did or did not do. Your very existence as an embodied black person is reason enough for belligerence, for threats, harassment, physical abuse, and even death. Now, I appreciate what police officers do, but there is a systemic problem. This is not just the case of a few bad apples. Incidents like this bring that reality to the forefront yet again. So, be careful out there, brothers and sisters. The Democratic debates and the shakeup in the polls. Last week, 20 Democratic candidates for the presidency squared off in the first round of Democratic debates. There were so many candidates that the debates had to be spread out over two nights with 10 candidates each. Some candidates polling at or below 1% really needed a breakout moment in order to stay in the race. And the top tier candidates with the highest polling numbers, they really just needed not to mess up. And so through each night, some candidates achieved their goals and others failed. And it's been all of one week since the debates. And so there are no less than 167,356 articles and op-eds about the debates. So if you want to know winners, losers, slip-ups, and shining moments, I will direct you to those sources. I want to focus on the results of the debate, which was a pretty significant shakeup at the top. So according to CNN, they conducted a poll And after the two-night debate, they found that 22% of registered voters who are Democrats or Democratic-leaning independents uh, backing Biden for their party's presidential nomination. So 22% for Biden, 17% for Harris, 15% for Warren, and 14% for Bernie Sanders. No one else in the 23-person field tested hits 5%. And that represents a 10-point decline in support for Biden since the last CNN poll in May. But Harris, who's a senator from California, she got a 9-point increase. And Warren, who's senator from Massachusetts, she boosted her support by 8 points. No other candidates saw much movement in the last poll. And so this big bump for Kamala Harris and this big decline for Biden, that came when she challenged that frontrunner Joe Biden on his opposition to busing earlier in his career. Harris was responding to a comment that Biden made and then later doubled down on that he could work with people across the aisle and he could work with those with whom he disagreed. And one of the examples he gave was Senator James O. Eastland of Mississippi, a man who made his legislative reputation opposing integration and black civil rights. And so that was a mic drop moment for Kamala, and she jumped up in the polls after that. Now, that's nothing new for Senator Harris. In congressional hearings, you may remember, she's developed a reputation for this no-nonsense style, these piercing questions that eviscerate her targets with cool logic. And along with Harris, Elizabeth Warren had a good night, and these two candidates, plus Biden and Sanders, they have the most serious chance at the nomination, at least as it stands right now. Others had a good showing, but they round out the top. Now, I want to connect the debates to what Harris was talking about, this issue of busing. Now, let's talk about terms. First, we got to be clear that the issue is not, uh, the, the issue about busing is not over buses. 
It's not about a form of transportation. Uh, Buses had long been used in public schooling, and they made it much more efficient and convenient for families when it came to their children getting an education. Busing is about racial desegregation in public schools. People who opposed busing used that word and this issue as a cover for their real fear, the fear of racial integration. Now, historians once again come to the rescue on this hot button button issue that's receiving renewed national attention. So Matthew Delmont is a historian at Dartmouth, and he literally wrote the book on this topic. His book is called Why Busing Failed, Race, Media, and the National Resistance to School Desegregation, Why Busing Failed. He wrote an excellent article recently in The Atlantic that I'll link to in today's show notes, and he breaks it all down. Delmont writes that white parents in New York City organized in the late 1950s to oppose plans to bus black and Puerto Rican students from overcrowded schools to white schools with open seats. The parents used euphemisms such as busing and neighborhood schools to maintain segregated schools without explicitly saying they did not want their children to go to school with black or Latinx students. Now, you got to grasp this. They used euphemisms, in this case, busing and neighborhood schools, without explicitly saying they didn't want integration. This is a point I've been trying to make over and over and over again, that racism never goes away, it adapts. So before Brown v. Board... You could just say outright, I don't want my kid going to school with black or brown kids. I don't want my kid going to school with black or brown kids. And and that was socially acceptable. That was perfectly normal for a broad swath of Americans, and it was certainly common to hear. Now, after Brown v. Board, the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act, and some of these other social and cultural changes, you can't say that anymore. So what happens? Does racism just go away? Does it just disappear because all of a sudden there's a law on the books somewhere? Well, number one, that law has to be enforced. We'll get to that in a minute. And number two, of course, racism hasn't disappeared. It's just gone underground. And so you use different terms like uh, forced busing or busing and neighborhood schools. And what it is, it's all code for saying, keep my schools with white kids and All these other schools can have all the other non-white kids. So back to the brief history lesson. Of course, Brown v. Board passed in 1954. And and the next year, a lot of people don't think about this, but Brown v. Board 2 passed. And that was the law that said schools needed to desegregate with all deliberate speed. Now, all deliberate speed meant token desegregation or no integration whatsoever, Northerners, they were implicated too, so don't sit up there in Illinois or New York or somewhere out west, California or wherever, and think this is just a southern problem. This, in fact, is where the rubber hit the road for northerners because they were just as guilty as white southerners for keeping their schools racially segregated. In fact, the courts had to step in to ensure that schools were integrating. This is where the busing solution comes in. And by the way, another bonus because I like y'all. This issue of racial desegregation impacted Christian schools, too, in particular Bob Jones University in the 1970s and into the 1980s uh, because they had first um, excluded black students altogether from their school. And then when they allowed black students in, they couldn't date interracially. 
No one could, and it was grounds perhaps for expulsion. And it's this issue of racial integration where Bob Jones University was going to lose, did lose its tax exempt status uh, for failing to integrate the schools. It's this issue that helped mobilize the religious right even before abortion became became the banner issue of the culture wars. So that's just a little extra for y'all. I've written about it and spoken about it elsewhere. Back to Biden. When he was elected to the Senate in 1972, he joined other opponents of busing and even wrote his own legislation to that end. Kamala Harris in the debate asked Biden if he still stood by those efforts. And instead of sort of um, a comment speaking to the evolution of his thinking on the matter, and he had this defensive response and said that Harris had mischaracterized his statements and his record, all the knowledge is it didn't, it wasn't a good look for him. And the polls are now showing it. But schools remain today as segregated and in some cases even more so as they were in the 1950s. And we're deluding ourselves if we think that this racial segregation is purely happenstance or simply the result of individual choices that parents make to try to give their kids the best education. If you study the history of school desegregation, you'll find that for decades and continuing right up to the present day, Parents and politicians have opposed mixing black and white kids, rich and poor kids. And they'll always say, oh, I just want the best schools or that neighborhood isn't, it doesn't, doesn't have good schools, but they won't mention the racial component, but they'll never mention the fact that the schools that they're characterizing as bad schools happen to have a very high percentage of racial and ethnic minority students. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, she's an investigative journalist, and she's one of the foremost thinkers on school integration. And she insists that schools will remain fundamentally unequal unless and until there is an aggressive and sustained racial integration in public education. And so that begs the question, where do you send your kids to school and why? Even if your kids don't attend a public school, Is the school integrated? Do your schools represent the community around you or just your racially and economically homogenous neighborhood or maybe your congregation if it's a Christian school attached to a church? For the few parents whose kids do go to a more diverse school, are you aware of the subtle and sometimes overt ways racism still operates? For instance, what is the composition of the faculty, staff, and administration? What about the school board? Do these groups represent the diversity of the student body as well? And boy, could I tell you some stories when those things don't match up. Also asking, you know, are all opportunities accessible to all students, especially if they have financial difficulties? So for us, you know, we can't expect to see much progress in terms of racial justice as long as our schools remain racially segregated. And this is a question and a problem that Christians must confront as well. There is a crisis at the border, and we have to talk about it. And I use that word crisis on purpose. There was a poll that showed back in January, 23% of Democrats called it a crisis. And as of now, uh, late June, early July, 70% of Democrats see it as a, as a crisis. Um, lawmakers went to the border 
and they described horrific circumstances at these detention centers. That same day, as Congress people were descending on the border to check out the conditions for themselves, an organization called ProPublica revealed a closed Facebook group in which current and former Border Patrol agents shared jokes about migrant deaths. They made derogatory comments about Latina lawmakers, and they shared a lewd meme involving one of these lawmakers. You can probably guess who that was. There were these detention centers, particularly in Clint, Texas, that had squalid conditions. Uh, They were overcrowded. Their resources were running out and stretched thin. A Democratic representative named Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania, she tweeted that conditions are far worse than we ever could have imagined. And this is a human rights crisis. She went on to say, 15 women in their 50s and 60s, sleeping in a small concrete cell, no running water, weeks without showers, all of them separated from their families. If you've seen some of the pictures, this horrific, gut-wrenching picture of a young father with his 23-month-old daughter, they drown trying to get into the country and escape uh, some some conditions in their home country. It's, it's like I said, gut-wrenching. Uh, this is a crisis of historic proportions unfolding before our very eyes and in our own time. But there's this huge partisan divide over the crisis. Um, so they did a poll on how many people or what percentage of people disapprove of the treatment that migrants are receiving at the border. Democrats are, are 93% of Democrats disapprove of the treatment that migrants are receiving at the border. A majority of independents, 60% say the same, but most Republicans, 62% say they approve of the way migrants are being treated by the government. This is a massive, massive divide. It's an issue that we must discuss in our churches because it speaks to a fundamentally different outlook on life and a, and a different interpretation of reality that, that people are seeing. Maybe they're seeing the same facts. Maybe they're not. And that's probably part of the problem is where we're getting our news because certain outlets uh, – are, are, are reporting news, and even if they have a, a centrist or, or liberal bias, the, the data is there. Other outlets, maybe not so much. I don't know. But the fact is, this is a humanitarian and human rights debacle. This isn't about the laws of the land. It's about the lives of fellow image bearers. It's about people who have hopes and dreams and struggles just like the rest of us. It's about basic necessities like like water and warmth and parents staying with their children. As, as folks often say, this isn't about left or right. It's about right and wrong. And we have to see that this is a crisis and we have to act. Otherwise, we are guilty of compromise and complicity. So Eli Wiesel, the Jewish Holocaust survivor and author, he once wrote, we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. 
I want to take sides on this crisis of immigration. I want to take the side of the immigrants, the harassed, the people with their backs against the wall, those fleeing oppression and hoping for a better life. I want to take sides against people or policies that say we have to dehumanize others in order to protect our borders. I want to take sides against those who label fellow image bearers as animals or insects to be crushed or flushed or pushed out. I want to take sides for common sense and humane immigration laws that keep our nation secure while at the same time recognizing the immense value of immigrants in our country. Most of all, in this moment of grave and public human misery, I do not want to be silent. I do not want to encourage the tormentor through my silence. So this is me on the mic about it, speaking up, but I also want to do more. And I need help. I need suggestions. Maybe you do too. What are some tangible ways for me and other individuals or even organizations to help people suffering at the border? Send me your ideas. Send links, names of people or nonprofits or churches doing good work out there. I'll share some of those, and by God's grace, I'll personally contribute all I can to the effort. You can tweet at me, at Jamar Tisby, and find me on Facebook at my author page, or better yet, email me at footnotespod1 at gmail.com. Uh, all that information will be in the show notes, but let's let's collaborate on this. Let's figure out what we can do so that over the test of time, we can look back and be proud that we stood up for justice, be proud that in the face of daunting odds and forces, we did what was right, no matter how effective we may have been in the long run. And I would hate to look back and say that I was one of the ones who didn't take sides, that by my very inaction, my neutrality, that I helped the oppressor and not the victim, and that my silence encouraged the tormentor and didn't help the tormented. Let's do something. That's it for this week, folks. Remember to like my author page on Facebook so we can continue this discussion. Facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one. I'm also on Instagram at Jamar Tisby and on Twitter at Jamar Tisby. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby. And this is Footnotes.